Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here, but much more importantly, author, novelist, and you know his work from uh, TV with Law and Order and, uh, and, and certainly Blue Bloods. Peter Blauner is our very special guest. The latest book, the latest book is Proving Ground. And uh, he's he's got a whole batch of novels that are just uh, all worth getting. Um, Slow Motion Riot and The Intruder, uh, to name a couple. Peter, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. And thanks for having me on, Frank. Yeah, appreciate your time here. And uh, you're you're in the middle of a of another. Uh, before we get to Proving Ground, are you you're in the middle of another novel now, or are you just kind of uh, you're just kind of thinking and researching? Uh, where are you on your next project? Well, actually, I'm um, uh, well on the way. Uh, I'm glad to say I'm taking some time off uh, from Blue Bloods. I'll be returning there uh, after Thanksgiving. Uh, but I am writing uh, the second book. It's the first time I've ever written anything resembling a series uh, because I'm picking up some of the characters from Proven Ground and I'm bringing them into uh, a new story uh, with this new book uh, that I'm writing that I hope will be out. Um, in 2018 or 2019, which for me is lightning speed because it actually was 11 years between my sixth and seventh novel because I was writing for television. So I'm, I'm definitely picking up the pace now. Well, go back to, to the first novel or the first, uh, you know, I, I assume there, there might have been other attempts uh, at a novel before that and, and describe the, the differences in methodology between then and now, and and again, you're you know you're a young guy, but I, I'm sure you uh, knew life before the internet and before uh, computers were a main part of our our life. You you never actually wrote on on typewriter, did you? I did. I began my career uh, in the very early '80s. Uh, I first worked for a guy named uh, Pete Hamill, who some of your listeners uh, may remember, who was a columnist for the Daily News and the New York Post. In those days, and he wrote before electric typewriters, uh, and he was still using a manual. And and I just listened to the rhythm of the way he wrote. Uh, sometimes it was like a machine gun, and then the sentences would come out with perfect rhythm one after the other. And he he wrote to the rhythm of Gene Krupa's drumming, really. Yeah. But what I did with my first novel actually is, uh, as, as I mentioned to you off air, I'm a recovering journalist, <laughs> and part of what <laughs> part of what I, I I wanted to do when I wrote my first novel is write about the world as it is. I didn't want to write uh, a Lord of the Rings fantasy, and I didn't want to write a self-indulgent, uh, what I like to call, snow on the tennis court kind yeah. of novel. Right. I wanted to really uh, get plugged into what the world was. So I wanted to pick out a job that would be the source of uh, the theme and the language and the story of the book. And so I used my work as a journalist to find the right job, and one day I did a story about a probation officer. And this is in the late 80s, so it was the height of the crack epidemic, and it was the height of the AIDS thing, and it was the height of the Wall Street insider trading thing, if uh, any of your listeners are old enough to remember that. And and I thought, this is a very interesting character, because he's dealing with all these people who are on probation for any of these things. It could be a kid dealing crack from the project, it could be somebody who got locked up for insider trading. Um, and this guy is supposed to be both uh, the social worker who helps them out because they're getting probation instead of prison, 
but then if they screw up, he's the one who sends them to prison. He's the hammer that comes down on them. And and then I had a whole Jekyll and Hyde kind of feeling to it that I thought was interesting. But I didn't want to write about it completely from the outside. So what I did is I actually left my job. I was at New York Magazine at the time, and I became a volunteer probation officer for six months. Wow. Just, just so I could have the real immersion, the day-to-day of the experience. And... Then I uh, beat my head against the wall until blood began to run down my forehead onto the page, and <laughs> that was easy enough to write a novel that way. Yeah, that's <laughs> terrific. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, and your description of, of the character uh, being a, a pro, or just at least the job description of your character, uh, probation officer, is uh, is actually a terrific way to go. But before you comment, let me remind everyone who may just be tuning in or turning on their radios for the first time. Frank McKay here with Peter Blauner. And you know his TV work from Blue Bloods and Law and & Order and, and so much more. He's got, a, uh, he's got credentials a mile long and wonderful uh, novelist. And this particular uh, novel, or the last novel, I should say, is Proving Ground. And it's wonderful. Everyone should go out and buy it. And he's published by St. Martin's Press, I guess. Uh, is, is that an exclusive thing? Or do you kind of go from publisher to the publisher? Or are you are you tied into them? Well, right now, I'm, uh, uh, I have a two-book commitment with uh, uh, St. Martin's at their Minotaur imprint. And actually, they've been terrific. And, and I'm not just saying that. I'm not great just, publisher. Uh, yeah, great, yeah. Uh, wonderful publisher. Yeah. Every, everything I ever hear about them is just wonderful. And, and also, they let me do pretty much what I want uh, with these books. I mean, when you write for television, as I do, as you mentioned, I write for Blue Bloods, I've written for Law & Order SBU, and I've written for Law & Order Criminal Lieutenant, a bunch of other shows. And even in the best of all possible worlds, you're working with 200, 250 other people. And in some way, it's not going to be your vision if, if you're doing that. I mean, there have to be compromises. There's budget, there's actors, there's locations. It ain't going to come straight from your head down onto the page and through the reader's eyeball. When you write a book, you have that direct communication. I'm talking to you directly and telling you a story directly. And if you like it, great. And if you don't, there's no one else for me to blame. You know, uh, uh, And I, I like having that uh, direct contact with the reader. Have you always liked that? And, and I mean, go way back. I mean, do you... Uh, do you think you would have appreciated writing for TV if you would have started out that way as opposed to uh, doing some novels first and then going to TV? Do you think you would have liked this originally? I, you know, writing for TV, I, I don't think so. I mean, because the whole reason when I, uh, I got into writing in the first place is one day when I was um, a kid, I was a teenager, I was at uh, Gimbal, and uh, I was uh, buying a Mother's Day gift uh, from my mom at the counter. And there was a four-year-old little girl, and she started down her dress, and her nanny was there, and she said, "Stop! Your dad is your mother." And oh. I thought that wow. <laughs> I thought that was such a great moment yeah. that I couldn't wait to tell somebody about it directly. Now, if you're writing for television, like there's all kinds of things that are going to get in the way of you telling somebody that story. But the closest I can come to having that contact with somebody and telling the story my way is to set it down in a novel on the page and writing uh, for the page. Um, and, and if I bring anything uh, to writing for television, you know, it's an open question whether I do or not. I'm very lucky to have a job. I'm very lucky to have worked with uh, people uh, who I think are really talented and that I respect. It, it's that I, I hope I have some experience in the real world that informs uh, what I'm writing uh, for television. And if I didn't, I'd just be like everybody else. 
uh, and and I think it would come off that way. Let's do a little bit of your history, if you don't mind, and and if you can go way back to the beginning. Where were you born? Where were you raised? I'm from uh, New York City, and uh, I grew up uh, in the 1970s. So I bet, like a lot of your listeners, I uh, was very much shaped uh, by the memory of those years and by uh, the Ford to City drop dead fiscal crisis, uh, and also kind of the anarchy on the streets of New York City from those days, which we're starting to see reflected in popular culture now. We're reading a lot of books and seeing a certain number of television shows about uh, New York in that era. And that, that's also kind of reflected in the desire I had to tell people about things that I would see on the street in those days. Um, and I had a moment when I was young, and like a lot of kids, I collected comic books. Uh, and I was into Superman and Batman, like all that stuff. And I made a decision that was probably a, a terrible commercial decision, which was, uh, I'm, I'm going to be 13. I'm not interested in that anymore. Or, or I'm interested, but that's not what I, I want to do with my life. I'm more interested in what's really going on in the world and, and in understanding what's really going on in the world. And that's what pushed me into journalism and the idea that then I would have a reason to go through the door and talk to people about their lives and, and figure out you know, what, what made other people tick. Who was the first individual, uh, you know, male or female, that you recognized as being a journalist? Uh, it would have been, it been uh, Pete Hamill, who I grew up reading uh, in the Post in those days. Uh, and um, I, I think Jimmy Cannon was still writing uh, in those days, if you guys remember him as a sports yeah. writer. Uh, I, I read uh, Jimmy Breslin's book, uh, Can't Anybody Here Play This Game? Right. About the 1962 <laughs> Mets. Yeah, Casey uh, and, and, yeah and Casey Stengel and Mark Fromberry and all that. And I, I think that was the first time I actually made, read a book that made me laugh out loud. Yeah. And then, I, I re, then I actually started to read about the real New York Mets, and I realized, oh, he's just telling the truth. I thought he was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was making those people up. Yeah. <laughs> and I started to watch the Mets, and I realized the horrifying reality uh, yeah. of the situation. Hey, hey, keep, uh, your, keep your thought one second. I'm going to remind people once again of the voice they're hearing, Peter Blauner is a wonderful novelist and and a former journalist, recovering journal, journalist, as he put it, and yep. a, uh, a writer extraordinaire. And you know his work from Blue Bloods and, and Law and & Order and, and such uh, TV projects, very successful TV projects uh, like that. But Peter Blauner is our very special guest, Frank McKay, here with Peter. And uh, going, going back to that, uh, Breslin, uh, he, uh, he made you laugh, but he wrote about something that was that was being true yeah well that was truthful i mean just he was telling a story but he had a way jimmy breslin of uh, of telling those type of stories how much of that had an effect on on what you do the fact that he was telling a story that made you laugh and, and he really was telling the truth well it was that and also and I, I realize that some listeners may not like agree with where he was coming from politically but what was more important to me was the rhythm and music of the words themselves, that you could actually pick up some of those columns, and some of Pete's co Pete Hamill's columns, as, as I said, worked with Pete Hamill, and you could read them out loud, and, and they had a kind of music uh, to them. And, and the words had a, a particular look on the page, and I thought as a kid who like thought I was going to uh, throw the baseball like Tom Saver and somehow it didn't come out that way, or thought he was going to play guitar like Pete Townshend, and somehow it didn't come out that way, I thought, like, 
at least maybe I can put words on the page and it will come out close to the way I visualize it. Um, and and I, I realized uh, that there were steps that you needed to take and there was a discipline that you can, couldn't just make it happen. And from there, I jumped on to Hemingway. And from Hemingway, I jumped on to Raymond Chandler. And then I was off to the races with the reading and the writing. It's it's pretty amazing that you grew up reading Pete Hamill. And we're talking about Pete Hamill, Angela's Ashes. Pete Hamill, is that the same? A, a Drinking Life was his great book. Frank McCourt uh, wrote uh, Angela's Ashes, which is a wonderful book. He's a friend, he was a friend of Pete, uh, I believe. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, McCourt. Right, right, right. Yeah, they had a they had a relationship, uh, you know, a, a friendship uh, together. But uh, but yeah. Pete, yeah, a, a drinking life, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean that it's just to to me, it's absolutely amazing that uh, you know you you'd take that step, say, hey, look, I really enjoy, I, and and it sounds like such a logical thing to do. A kid's reading uh, a journalist, he's reading a writer, and uh, somehow or another. He, you know, thrives to uh, to to get there. Uh, how uh, how confident were you that you could end up working for a guy like this? Or did it just was there any kind of strange happenstance that it uh, it occurred by? It, it, it was it was a series of very lucky accidents. Uh, and the city in those days, uh, in some ways, it was more possible uh, to uh, have a kind of mobility and and weirdly to connect with people. I mean, even though the internet has given us the ability to pretty much reach out to anybody. Uh, it, it was it was a little bit different uh, in those days. And, and through happenstance, uh, I managed to, to meet him and somehow, uh, even more miraculously, not make an absolute fool of myself because I did that pretty frequently when I was 19 when I met him. And he, imme- and he immediately taught me, and Pete immediately taught me two of the most important things I've ever learned as a writer. And he taught them and, and he taught them to me um, within, I think, the first week that I met him. And the first one was, um, when you have an experience, write down every aspect of it within 24 hours. Because if you don't, you will forget the one detail that you will need in six months <clears throat> or a year to really make it come to life, to really make it vivid. And that has proven to be true over and over and over again. You, like, you won't notice the picture frame in the corner, but then if you write it down and then you go back to it later, you'll find out, oh, that was actually brought over from the grandmother yeah. from Russia, and that, 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 that happens over and over and over again. Hey, the sec, the yeah. second thing is always ask the hardest question you can think of. Always ask the hardest question you can think of? If you're afraid to ask a question, ask it. Probably make it the last question, because the answer might maybe get the hell out of my office. Right. Now, now, does he mean that in, in general? Does he mean that when you're asking a subject a, uh, or just in general, any, anybody that you're discussing uh, this with? Uh, and who, who should you ask the hardest question to, according to Pete Hamill? Well, in other words, if you're talking to somebody in power, and I, I actually I got you. experience uh, in some cases, and there's a question that you feel a little intimidated about asking, that means you must ask that question. And, and uh, Frank, you've uh, done this yourself a million times, and I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Frequently, the answer isn't get the hell out of the office. Frequently, the answer is okay, and the, and it begins a different, more honest kind of conversation. Hmm. 
Very interesting. Uh, fascinating conversation with a fascinating writer and author, novelist, Peter Blauner, recovering journalist, as he put it. Peter Blauner here with me, Frank McKay, and again, the author of uh, Slow Motion Riot, which I, I, I always love that expression, but uh, Slow Motion Riot, um, wonderful, uh, wonderful book, uh, The Intruder and Proving Ground, the most recent uh, work of, uh, of fiction by uh, Peter Blauner, and you were talking about uh, Pete Hamill. Why did I, wh- why did I jump to the conclusion of Angela's Ashes? What, did, what, what's his connection to? Because I think he and Frank McCord are considered to be like among a group of Irish American authors. Ah, okay. Uh, um, I, who um, brought a, a certain kind of uh, rough hewn literacy uh, to the scene in the '60s, '70s, '80s, and the '90s. Uh, you know. Uh, a, bunch of those guys are sort of um, associated with uh, a place called the Lion's Head uh, that closed, uh, I guess, back in the 80s, uh, as a matter of fact. But, but they're definitely uh, tributaries off the same uh, uh, river uh, of, uh, of Irish uh, voices. Um, and, and though that's not my background ethically or directly, it's something that I very strongly relate to because the people who I grew up with and sort of the voices I heard growing up on the streets of New York. And it's also sort of um, given me, I, I hope, a feeling of connection uh, with um, police officers who I end up uh, writing about and who, frankly, I owe a lot of my living to, yeah. uh, and who have been generous enough to share their stories with me over the years, both uh, when I was a, a journalist and, and even more so as a, as a novelist um, and, and uh, helping me try and bring, I hope, a sense of reality what I'm writing. You know, listen, uh, well, congratulations on all uh, all of the success that you've had over the years. Whatever you're doing, I guess, just keep doing it. Uh, you, you're doing so well with it. L- let me ask you about uh, law enforcement. And, you know, you're someone that I would consider to be, and just in, in the brief time, you know, brief couple of moments that you and I spent together, uh, I, uh, I, I see as being pro-law enforcement. But at the same time, if you saw... Uh, someone uh, that that wore a uniform do something wrong, you would be the first to to call them out on it. Uh, right. There are there are so many journalists now, and I think uh, there are so many law enforcement uh, officials and and professionals that consider the media or, or a big part of the mainstream media to be anti law enforcement. Your thoughts on that? Um, well. You know, maybe that's true. I mean, maybe there are tribal differences, uh, in a way, and, and that these are uh, guys who did not uh, grow up uh, going to the same schools, which maybe they did more so back in the day. Uh, maybe if you really thought about, like, your traditional Brooklyn uh, uh, schools, you could imagine the same guys being in the same classroom. And I, and I think there's a uh, division uh, that has gone on since then. I, I can only speak for myself. Uh, in this regard, which is, I, I try to be fair-minded about everybody. Uh, uh, that I I know uh, a lot of uh, really good people in police departments uh, all over the country, um, in in uh, New York City, in California, Long Island, and uh, uh, Florida, and, and people who really are going into this line of work for all the right reasons and who are really answering the call. Uh, to public service, and, and I think that's pretty much the highest calling uh, that there is. But as you said, if you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong. And it's not like I just see blue and I give you an automatic pass. I mean, like, 
it's a, it's a big responsibility, and, and you have to like uh, uh, take it seriously. And and if you're violating that oath, you're not just hurting yourself. I mean, it, it reflects and, and echoes through the rest of society itself, and that, and that's reflected also in the kind of storytelling that I've tried to do, both in the books, um, and to uh, some extent even on Blue Bloods, which is unmistakably uh, a very pro cop. Uh, no doubt. Show. No doubt about uh, it. And and yeah, realistic yeah. too. I mean a, a real very realistic show gets high marks for a lot of uh, a lot of the work including certainly the work of Peter Blauner. Peter, we're coming up on break. Do we have you for another quick segment? Sure. Peter Blauner, author, novelist, uh, recovering journalist as he puts it. Frank McKay here with Peter Blauner. And the latest book, please go out and get it, is Proving Ground. And, and in a couple of seconds, uh, Peter, can you give us a website that people can go and, and follow you and, and do what they need to do? Sure. Uh, www.peterblauner. That's uh, Peter, the way it's normally spelled, Blauner, B, like boy, L-A-U-N, like nonsense, E-R, uh, dot com. <laughs> All right, Frank McKay signing off for a second here. We'll be back right after a couple quick messages with Peter Blauner, author, and uh, of course, you know, his wonderful work from Blue Bloods and Law and Order. We'll be back right after this. Breaking it down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone back. Two breaking it down, Frank McKay here, but more importantly, novelist, writer, and, and television writer. Uh, well known for his work on Law and Order and Blue Bloods, Peter Blauner is our very special guest. And, and check out his website, peterblauner.com, and, um, and, and definitely buy his latest book, buy all of his books, or load up on, on Peter Blauner books. Uh, Proving Ground is the name, and it's uh, wonderful. You will not be, uh, not be disappointed. Peter, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm glad to be on the show. Uh, welcome back. And we were talking a little bit about uh, Pete Hamill. We were talking uh, oh. briefly about uh, Jimmy Breslin. And as you were you were kind of telling your story, I'm I'm thinking, boy, he's he's New Yorker, like you know, died died in the wool New Yorker that you are. Uh, you know, as as I am. I mean, I, Long Island. You know, more more than anything. But I mean, a tremendous amount of time in Manhattan. But you uh, sound like one of those guys. In the sense, you know, Breslin for sure, uh, where where you kind of love where you are, good or bad, and, and that it's Manhattan. Is there any well Manhattan or Brooklyn or the boroughs, one of the boroughs? But is, is there anywhere else, where else that you lived for any length of time, other than no, New York? No, absolutely not. I, I've, uh, I've I actually spent a little bit of time uh, in Atlantic Beach uh, uh, when I was growing up, but mainly uh, I've been either uh, Manhattan. Or Brooklyn, Peter. We were talking about your your life in uh, in New York. Your lifelong uh, I, I don't know. Is it a love affair with New York? Is it a uh, love and hate affair? Is it just is it just home and you you take it as it comes? It's it's a family, uh, and and it shapes you uh, for better or for worse. Um, and um, one of the things that I, I made a decision about early on is that I wanted to stay in the same place. So I could see how the story comes out, uh, because you get to know people out over the course of 30, 40, 50 years, and, and the story takes twists and turns that you could have never anticipated otherwise. Like, I, I remember back when I was a reporter, I uh, did a story about a, a drug dealer um, who was getting sentenced in court in Queens, and the judge 
said, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do for you because I consider your promise to be so heinous. I'm going to get out an actuary table, and I'm going to see what your life expectancy is, and I'm going to sentence you to something close to that life expectancy. Um, and he said, your life expectancy is another 30 years, so I'm giving you 25. And he thought, that's wow. it. I'll never hear from that guy again. Right. The, guy, the guy got out of prison, and he, is beca- and he was a very successful crack dealer in the 80s. And he has become a very successful entrepreneur since he got out teaching jazzercise classes at senior centers throughout <laughs> Queens and Brooklyn. That's, that's worth sticking around town to hear. That story is yeah. worth sticking around to hear. But also, it informs the characters that you write about. Like, I'm writing this book, I have this book, Proving Ground, uh, uh, that just came out. And it takes place uh, in Brooklyn, near where I live. And it's... Um, on the surface, it's the story of a father and a son relationship. Uh, a father who's um, a civil rights lawyer, and, and I guess uh, for some people a real pain in the neck, is found murdered in Prospect Park. And his son, who has rebelled against him by becoming a strong conservative and joining the U.S. Army and serving in Iraq, and has, who has been estranged from him, um, realizes the only way to uh, resolve all the things that are unresolvable in the relationship is to find out who killed them. But one of the things that I hope people get out of the book is not only the murder mystery part of it, which which is there, and the suspense part is there, but also I hope they get a real feeling for life as it's lived, and life as it's lived in a neighborhood over the course of decades. And uh, also trying to give people a sense of how these characters changed, and, and, and I'm trying to make them feel lived in and real in the way that your neighbors feel real uh, and lived in. Uh, uh, because I want to put you in my world for the period of time that you have the book in your hands. Is it, I, I mean, I, that's fascinating, and I, and also a very, you know, like a gritty look at, uh, at, at life, and, and, you know, a, a real uh, understandable uh, take on life. I mean, I think that's that's wonderful. Let me ask you about some of the characters in your book, and I don't mean specifically, but in general, can you write about someone at this point? And having spent so much time with uh, with Law and Order and and Blue Bloods writing for for screen, is it almost impossible to write these characters without thinking about them in in physical on screen form? Well, there's two different things. There's writing for the television show in which you know that there are regular cast members and you know that the actors are um, accustomed to a certain... I, I mean your I, I mean your characters that, that have nothing to do with Blue Bloods, nothing to do with oh, Lauren Order, oh. but your characters in your novels, I mean, can you, uh, can you possibly write about them without... Uh, you know, uh, having them become real in your mind, or right. they, uh, they become they go beyond becoming real in my mind. In several cases, they've gone from being real in my mind to being real in the flesh. In other words, the the other way around. Like I go out of my way to try and meet pe- real people who have experiences that will be reflected in the stories that I'm going to write. But then I've had the opposite experience, which is I have completed the book, and then I will meet somebody who is the character, and in several cases, with the exact same name as the character. Wow. Yeah. And, and uh, when I finished Slow Motion Ride, Slow Motion Ride is about a probation officer named Stephen Baum, and his relationship with one of his clients who uh, is involved in the crack trade is a very dangerous young man named Daryl King. And 
And after the book came out, I got a letter from, I think it was the Frankfurt Behavioral Modification Center, which is, of course, a prison in Kentucky. And I said, dear Mr. Blowner, I read your book. I really related to the situation that the character was in. Uh, Yours truly, Errol King. I thought, well, that's weird, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) I picked that name. So that was one experience. Then many years later, I wrote a book called Slipping Into Darkness, which was the, the, the book before Proving Ground that came out. And uh, this book is largely about someone who goes into prison at 17 and comes out at 37. And so he's having this whole Rip Van Winkle experience. He goes in 1983, gets out in 2003, and the world has changed a lot. And I said to a friend of mine who's very experienced within the system, uh, I want to meet somebody who's had that experience, who's been in for that kind of length of time. He said, well, you should talk to Daryl King. I said, well, you mean the character from my early book? He's like, no. I said, are you talking about a guy from Kentucky? He's like, no. So there was a completely different guy named Daryl King. Yeah, wow. <laughs> who he introduced me to, uh, and who ended up being a, a good source uh, for the book, and who had a lot of insights into you know uh, what that experience would be like. That's happened actually three or four other times. But that's, those are the times when it was the same first and last name. I've had it, but usually just the same first name. Uh, it's pretty, yeah. It's pretty amazing. It manifests itself, and uh, you know there there are self help authors uh, who who would love to hear that story and and include it in the next uh, edition. You know because that's it. I so. yeah, yeah. I mean that, that's terrific. Frank McKay here again with Peter Blauner, and we got a couple moments left with the wonderful author of uh, of many novels. The latest is Proven Ground. And he's working on on what will will soon be the latest, and uh, you know his work, his TV work from Law and Order and Blue Bloods, uh, both tremendously successful, and his his writing is is among the best on TV. Peter Blowney here with me, Frank McKay. Uh, that all being said, and and all of this um, talk about uh, about journalism, especially journalism in in New York City, uh, I I have to believe that you're fortunate or you must feel fortunate that you don't have to make your living working for a print medium anymore because I don't know how long uh, they will will be out. In fact, let me ask you a question that I've asked uh, many people. Uh, at what point will we see the first major news print publication turn into uh, electronic only or, or digital only? Well, I guess that sort of happened to Newsweek, right, uh, already, and I uh... If time uh, may be close to, uh, I'm talking about the uh, tabloids uh, more. The New- oh, oh, oh you mean like the yeah. Post and the Daily yeah. News and all that? You know, I hate I hate to think about that happening. Um, I mean, it, it it probably will happen within the next two or three years, but it's not something that I'm looking forward to at all. I'm, I'm uh, maybe it's a generational thing that uh, I grew up with having the actual uh, newspaper print in my hand. Uh, but you know, on the other hand, look, a couple of years ago, people in publishing. We're saying the book is done. Uh, it's all going to be about the digital edition, um, and uh, uh, people will just be reading on their Kindles. And I think there's been a movement back to actual uh, physical print and uh, and having the, the gravity of that object in your hand. So you know, but theater didn't disappear when movies came along. Movies didn't disappear completely when television came along. Television hasn't completely disappeared since uh, uh, computers came along. I mean, obviously, the, the, all those things had diminished. They weren't what they once were. But but I hope there will still be some version of, of that uh, format. 
Well, I, I think when the Wi-Fi in the subways gets better, I, I think it's going to take a huge hit out of the print editions of uh, of the newspapers. And I'm not, you know, I don't say it with any joy necessarily, you know, uh, but I think that, uh, you know, people are, are down there for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, even two hours driving back and forth, riding back and forth on the subways. Um, and if the Wi-Fi is not working, then their, then uh, uh, you know, their digital device or their phone is not working. And uh, and they they still need that newsprint. So when that Wi-Fi gets better, it's uh, uh, you know to to me it's uh, it's going to signal the end. I, one last question. More bloody noses in the subway because people will be walking into polls while they're reading. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Interesting point there. I but on on the uh, on the last uh, point about this, which news uh, publication do you think it would be first? Do you think it's uh, it, it immediately would be the Daily News out of all of them? Uh, maybe, maybe. Again, I, I, I'd hate to think about that happening because part of, you know, what you want is a mixture of voices at the newsstand. And so I, I like uh, I read the Post. I read the New York Post every day. I read the Daily News every day. And I read the New York Times every day. And then, uh, you know, I, I read the other papers online. <laughs> Probably if I read less of them, I'd have more time and there'd be more books. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to push that day as far off into the future as possible. Well, again, I'll remind everyone who's just tuning in, Peter Blauner is our very special guest, a wonderful writer, um, former journalist, and, and I'm sure some of that still creeps into his, uh, into his work, and it has to certainly set a... Uh, foundation for years of writing novels now and for for the small screen blue bloods well yeah in the sense that i actually go out and try and meet people and uh, uh like in this new book proving ground it's it's about uh in large part a veteran uh coming back and trying to adjust to civilian life after uh, uh being in the army and having these traumatic experiences in iraq so one of the things that i did is I went to Walter Reed Hospital. I spent some time out there. I talked to a lot of veterans who were willing uh, to share their stories. And I hope that reality informed a uh, book in some way. And it was something that one of those guys said that made me feel like, oh, I actually can do this, even though I didn't serve myself. He said, I was, I was walking down the street one day, and I saw a white plastic bag on the street, and I swerved around it, because in my mind, it was an IED. And when he said that, I thought to myself, well, that's exactly how I would react if I'd had your experiences. That, that, that to me didn't seem like anything abnormal psychologically. That seemed regular to me psychologically. And at that point when he said that, I thought, oh, okay, maybe I can honor this experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, very interesting. Uh, when did you, you know, other, other than just basically saying uh, from, um, uh, you know, from the day that the Internet was... Uh, uh, was created. Um, what would you say, in your mind, was the biggest moment or the biggest change in, in any writer's life? Or just take your own. I guess you can only speak for you, yourself individually. But when was it? I mean, is it mid '90s? Is it late '90s? 2000? When did things change for you? And, and again, you know, go back to methodology if you, if you could. I mean, when did it go from? I mean, forget the t the typewriter, but from the word processor uh, to uh, to where you go now. Did you ever use uh, anything verbal? Do you uh, do you ever talk into your iPhone at this point? Uh, when did it start changing? No, I've gone back. I've gone backwards. I've taken a major step backwards uh, just recently, which is 
for the first time in my life, I only write in longhand on a pad. After working on a keyboard for most of my professional life, I've made a deliberate decision to just turn off the computer and put it on the other side of the room or I go to the other side of the room. I get a yellow legal pad, I get a black pen in my hand, and I sit there and I put my head down and I write. And the reason is that otherwise the distraction of all this social media and that uh, Fox TV and the CNN.com or whatever else you can it just takes too many pieces of your attention. It's like little piranhas tearing at your concentration. And I can't do that if, I, if I'm going to write a novel. Because when I write a novel, I need to use all five senses. I need to use taste, touch, sight, smell, everything. And, and you can't have that level, or at least I can't. I'm not bright enough to have that level of concentration if I'm like distracted with three other things at the same time. So the only way I, I can do it is just by sitting there and reverting to the way you would have done it in 1868. You, know, you mentioned the rhythm of writing, and you mentioned uh, listening to to Pete Hamill type on the uh, on the old you know Royal or whatever uh, he had right the old typewriter yeah, Royal yeah yeah and and uh, banging away and it's uh, like a machine gun at times and and just flowing through flowing 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 and and all of that and you mentioned the rhythm I if you if you had to Go back to that, uh, and you know you, you mentioned it's like Gene Krupa <laughs> playing drums. Yeah, but if if you yeah, have yeah, to go that's back, a particular phrase that Dash Krupa uh, uh, would repeat in his head as he was drumming. It was uh, two pork chops and some nice potatoes or something like that. That's the rhythm that he drummed to. And Pete told me he keeps that rhythm in his head when he types. Yeah, see that's that that's amazing, and I have to believe that uh, that uh, it, you know it helps him with his creative process. How do you make up for that if you're no longer using that old-fashioned typewriter? How do you do that with the rhythm? Do you do it uh, as you're writing? Do you do it as you're you're creating? Do you have that same kind of rhythm? Is there any substitute for that that royal typewriter with the uh, with with the uh, uh, the rhythm method? If you want to, you asked you asked good questions, Frank. Actually, for some reason, I hear it much more clearly when I'm writing by hand, and then because. With the computer keyboard, everybody's so facile with it, especially when you're writing email that you just kind of like, I type this, I erase this, I type this, I erase this. Whereas when I'm writing by hand, I'm focusing much more on, is this the right word that I want to use? Because it's, it's I actually have trouble uh, with my handwriting, which is the other reason why I like to make myself do it, because it's difficult. And so that actually makes me fall into a very definite rhythm. Uh, uh, and the sentences, I think, come out much more cleanly uh, that way because uh, it's almost, it almost feels much more like I'm working with a hammer and a chisel when I'm writing by hand than I do uh, if I'm, uh, you know, just uh, uh, tapping at the keyboard where it can sound like a massive mahjong tournament, you know, <laughs> just moving <laughs> the tiles around. <laughs> Is that the biggest difference between the? the veteran writers, let's say, and the and the new writers. And before you answer it, let me remind people, Peter Blauner is our very special guest, Frank McKay, here with the uh, the author, novelist, uh, television writer, Law and Order and Blue Bloods, uh, uh, two of his uh, big projects and uh, an ongoing, um, ongoing work, certainly on uh, Blue Bloods, and he's got a little bit of time off to work on his next novel. Uh, but other than... Uh, the the methodology that we talked about and and what must be there, but what what's the biggest difference between a veteran writer like yourself or Pete Hamill and, and some of the newer guys that came in, uh, you know, post internet? 
Well, maybe uh, you know, I, I don't want to uh, slam anybody uh, generationally because uh, in the, at the end of the day, I think if you're a good writer, you're a good writer, and you'd be a good writer in any era. But maybe there is a, a tendency, both in fiction and in nonfiction these days, to go, I'm an aggregator more than I'm a reporter, and there's a huge difference. Because an aggregator is going to different websites, and they're cutting and pasting, and they're putting together things from different sources. And I, I'm sorry, I don't care what you say. If you're not standing on the banks of the Guamas Canal, you don't know what it smells like. You don't know what it feels like. You, you don't have that tactile experience. Um, and to me, I need to force myself to get out the front door and down into the street instead of talking to people who actually can help me you know, find the way to have those experiences or at least simulate them uh, in some way. And And I don't think... At least for me, as a reader, anybody who's just doing it with a couple of clicks on a keyboard is, is going to get to the same place. Yeah, very, very interesting. It's always interesting to talk to someone who does what they do very well. It's, it's always interesting, especially interesting, to talk to somebody who does several things very well and has the background that this man has. Peter Blauner has been our very special guest, and Frank McKay here. With uh, with someone you know his work more than you might know his name certainly Blue Bloods and Law and Order and and so many wonderful books Slow Motion Riot uh, The Intruder Proven Ground and and certainly everything that's coming after this uh, uh, Peter just uh, give us the website one more time and 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 just uh, you know close with what's coming up next and we got about a minute to go Okay uh, my website is www.peterblowner.com last name is B-L-A-U, N, like non-sequitur, E-R, dot com. Uh, I, am, uh, I have uh, Proving Ground, which is out in the stores now, in hardcover. Uh, you can find my other books uh, online uh, from uh, fine booksellers. Um, and I will be back at uh, Blue Bloods starting after Thanksgiving. Again, and Frank, it, this has been terrific. This is uh, a really good interview, and uh, thanks for asking for such a smart question. Well, thrilled to have you. Peter Blauner, thank you very much. And we want to thank all of you for tuning in. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you next time on Breaking It Down.